it's Mando. I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. Welcome to our weekly recap and discussion of The Book of Boba Fett, streaming now on Disney+. We mentioned in one of our news updates last year how it was said that The Book of Boba Fett might be looked at as The Mandalorian Season 2.5. Well, this episode didn't just hint at that. It felt like an episode of The Mandalorian. Boba Fett can show up in an episode of The Mandalorian, and you can make a case why that makes sense, even though he's not technically a Mandalorian. Boba Fett not appearing at all in one of only seven episodes doesn't feel as defensible since it's titled The Book of Boba Fett. And yet, this was by far my favorite episode of the series so far. The episode doesn't just have a number, it's got a name. Chapter 5 is also known as Return of the Mandalorian, which is exactly what it was. It immediately evoked Return of the Jedi for me when I saw it on the title slate. That was a story about a son saving his father and continuing his legacy and the legacy of the group that he conquered. The Mandalorian is rejected here by his adopted family and may have to play the Conqueror in order to restore a homeworld he doesn't remember. The description for Chapter 5 on the Book of Boba Fett's Disney Plus page reads, An unexpected ally emerges. There's no listener feedback yet to share, but there are so many things to talk about, I think we should just get started. Actually, there is one other matter, if I may. Now for a note about This Is The Way Podcast's partnership with Cufflinks.com. The Book of Boba Fett has arrived on Disney Plus, and Christmas has come and gone. If you missed out on a nice shiny gift, don't worry. You don't need to hire someone through the guild to bring it home. Go to cufflinks.com and take a look at their sanctuary's many sundry offerings. New bounties pop up all the time, and now they have necklaces to add to their bracelets, cufflinks, socks, and ties. Boba Fett? He doesn't need to be your favorite. Grogu, the Mando, Vader, R2-D2, Yoda, Chewie. There are more than 3,000 licensed accessories made by this small family-run business. Cufflinks.com is the exclusive, officially licensed provider of cufflinks for dozens of top names. And not just Star Wars. Browse through a selection of Disney, Dune, Star Trek, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, DC Comics, and fans of our This Is The Way Phase 4 podcast may recall our love for the great selection of Marvel-themed items. Maybe you're looking for top fashion design names or sports-themed items from leagues like MLB, NFL, NCAA, NHL, and the NBA. The men's accessories you'll find are of the highest quality. We're talking tie bars and clips, shirt studs and stays, lapel pins, money clips, pocket squares, socks, ties, necklaces, bracelets, and cufflinks. If you decide to shop, make sure you check out their page for their current deals, and you can enter the way 15 at checkout for 15% off everything in your cart, with no minimum to buy. The Way 15 will be available throughout This Is The Way podcast's coverage of the Book of Boba Fett. Whether you want to let everyone know how much of a rebel you are, 
show off your imperial side, or rule the room with respect, Cufflinks.com has you covered. Check out Cufflinks.com today. Their reputation is legendary. The director for Episode 5 is Bryce Dallas Howard. She directed Sanctuary in Season 1 of The Mandalorian, Chapter 4, I believe it was. I saw a mention on Twitter that says she's scheduled to direct at some point in Season 3. I haven't been able to confirm that, but I'm totally on board. Her father is, of course, Ron Howard, who's got an extensive movie directing career, and he was, of course, an actor. And I don't really need to describe his credits. I mean, he's Ron Howard, for crying out loud. But I do get to mention that he was the director for Solo, a Star Wars story movie. And he, of course, taking over after some other directors didn't get the job done. Bryce did a terrific job with what was given to her in the script for Chapter 5. Credit for writing, though, goes to John Favreau. I think this this is his baby. This is his idea. And while I'm not sure about it, I'm, ass- I'm assuming now he's going to be the head writer on every chapter of the book. Runtime is listed at 52 minutes on the episodes tab of the Book of Boba Fett Disney Plus show page. But you've probably heard me say it before. I don't count credits or previously on segments and runtime. First action to credits for this one is just under 46 minutes. I continue to recommend watching the concept art and credits, not just for Ludwig Gorenson's music, but because it's interesting to see how the artist envisioned the concept of a scene and then how it's changed by the director. It was interesting to me to see that the duel between Din and Paz originally had Paz dual-wielding daggers instead of having his shield on his bracer. It was interesting to me to see the artwork for the abattoir where the Mandalorian is standing among the slain bodies of the gang with the heads of what kind of look like buffalo are hung on hooks. That might have gone well with the taking of the crime boss's head, right? We also didn't get a scene with the beady droid peeking out over Pelimato's shoulder. Also, it was originally supposed to be a helmeted human child on the shuttle to Tatooine, not a Rodian. But I think the Rodian worked well because it was green, which kind of signifies Grogu, right? But the child in the picture was holding like a little spaceship and wearing a helmet. So it kind of, you know, calls back to some other things. You know, it was holding an X-Wing, which of course like is like Luke Skywalker. And then it was wearing a helmet, kind of like uh, Rey put on the helmet in Force Awakens. So, while there appear to be changes, there were a number of concept art stills that were almost identical to what we saw during the episode. But whatever the reasons for the changes, Howard certainly packed her episode with plenty to see. Oh my god, I will get emotional, but the power of storytelling is immense. But if the, if the magic act doesn't work, then everything fails. There's not much for us to mine out of the credits this week, but there are a few things. Temuera Morrison is listed first, starring as Boba Fett, except he doesn't even appear. Ming-Na Wen is Fennec Shan, and she does appear, though at the very end. Pedro Pascal is listed. He is Din Djarin, the Mandalorian. Emily Swallow is back as the Armorer. Amy Sedaris is back as Pelimato. Kaba Baez is played by Ardashir Radpour, and his IMDb lists stunts on five of the six episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So we will get to see more of him. Perhaps the character he is doing stunt work for only appears in those five episodes, or maybe it's just a character he's acting for. 
The Aishi Tib Guildmaster is voiced by Helen Sadler and performed by Sophia Fredericks. Now, Fredericks hasn't done much yet, but Sadler has been doing voice work on Star Wars video games for years. And then she finally got a break doing Jin Erso's voice for Voices of Destiny on the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel. And then she did Rey in the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which then led to work on the Bad Batch and Marvel's What If series, and now here on The Mandalorian, no, I'm sorry, The Book of Boba Fett, Chapter 5. Quite the climb for her. One of the two Jawas listed is the one that Peli interacted with, and that must have been Leilani Shu, who did work on The Mandalorian, also as a Jawa. X-Wing pilot Lieutenant Reed is Max Lloyd-Jones. He's most famous in these parts, of course, as the stand-in for Luke in The Mandalorian Chapter 16. But my wife might recognize him from When Calls the Heart as Tom Thornton. Captain Carson Teva is back! I'm so glad we got to see him. One of our favorites, Paul Sun Young Lee. Of all the characters to pop back up, I may have been most happy to see him again. First, yes, He's our most famous Twitter follower, of course, but he's also an accomplished actor. And I feel like, in a sense, he's part of my gotcha. I I gotcha tell you, (laughs) I think we just get along. He's such a huge Star Wars fan, baseball fan, and hockey fan. Now, if you're listening, Paul, if you ever come to Tampa in early April, I will treat you to a Maple Leafs, Lightning, or Blue Jays Rays game. I'm a big baseball, hockey, and, of course, Star Wars fan, too, so I just think we'd get along. Yeah? Good. Unlisted but of interest is Paz Vizsla, who you may remember is voiced by Jon Favreau, but the onset double is the Hey Mando guy from The Mandalorian Chapter 1 in the opening scene, and he also did suit work for Paz Vizsla back in Chapter 3 as well. He was Nikolai and John Wick. Lester on Breaking Bad did work on Robert Rodriguez's From Dust Till Dawn's TV series. And uh, since I always mention when I find it, he was in an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That is Tate Fletcher. Now, what I might consider the biggest find of the credits is a character played by our oft-mentioned Chris Bartlett. We keep mentioning how much he does in the show and for Disney. But he's not performing as a droid this week. His character is listed as Glavis Kaskadak. So I typed that name in Google, and I looked for a Wikipedia entry. I could only find Kaskadak. It's not a last name, it's a species. It's obvious that he was the alien in the turbo lift if you look at the picture. But that ringed space station that they were on, Din Djarin and him? I don't think Glavis is the alien's name. I think it's the name of the place. He's playing the Cascadag on Glavis, or the Glavis Cascadag. I couldn't find any mention of Glavis on Wikipedia when I searched, but I gotta imagine someone's gonna be creating an entry soon. Now that's all the mentions for this week. When we come back from a short break, I'll begin the recap and discussion part of the show. Very well. All right, let's see if my voice can make it through this. Episode 5 begins in an animal processing plant. I guess it makes sense that a place like this might exist, but I guess I never thought about what it might look like, and I would have thought maybe it would have been done by robots. Concept art shows animal heads on hooks, and if they're supposed to be nerfs, 
they do have the correct downturned horns, but they're missing horns on the tops of their heads. You know, there should be horns on the tops of the heads in the concept art. It's possible the concept artist just omitted or didn't know about those, but that would have been a grisly-looking shot of Din Djarin among those heads. Since these Clatoonians are processing meat, the heads don't make sense anyways. I'll say these are nerf carcasses, even though the heads in the concept art don't match up. I'm guessing we're also already on the ringed space station of Glavis. A silhouette of Din Djarin is visible through the plastic low-temperature strip curtains. It's an awesome entrance shot, so kudos on the art, direction, and cinematography here. The setup from the audio cues at the end of last episode clued me in, so I was expecting this to be Din Djarin, but the spear was easily noticeable, so you knew it was him. When you go back and look a second time, the Darksaber is visible clipped to his left hip, but most of the shots of him entering show his right side, and the ones on his left, there's no effort to draw attention to the Darksaber when we see him. That sets up the reveal later. This isn't a shot-for-shot remake of Chapter 1 of The Mandalorian, but it could have been, except for the weapons and armor he now has. He's tracked a bounty, and he faces resistance. Mando walks into the room in the back of the plant, and there's a guy at the table. His clothes, to me, made me feel like this was something Middle Eastern, maybe a kosher or a halal-style butchery. But maybe it's just that I recently got done watching Peaky Blinders and was thinking of Alfie Solomons. The head honcho... And yes, I'm using a pun there, is Cabo Bias, except he pretends he isn't. Mando presents a tracking fob. He still doesn't want to admit it, and that's when he puts down the bounty puck, and there's a stiff bounty, something like 9,950 or 9,850 credits. But it's really hard trying to figure out exactly how much, because you cannot screenshot images off Disney+, Plus, even on your iPhone. So I was having real trouble trying to decipher what, you know, what those... Uh, Orabesh numbers were. Anyway, to add to the similarities with the first episode of The Mandalorian, the bounty wants to negotiate. And Din Djarin does present options. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. If you need a line setting up what kind of a show this is, I would say that does it. Kaba buys guards attack, and Din Djarin doesn't bring out his blaster, or even the spear. He pulls out the Darksaber. And he's brutal with it. He slices guards and slabs of beef in half, but he's not skilled with the blade. At one point, he glances off an unarmored spot on his leg and burns him severely. It's not a deep wound, but he is lucky he didn't lose a leg. I mean, it is very Star Wars to lose a limb, after all. Unfortunately for Kaba Bais, it's not enough to stop him. Not only does he get cut in half, but Din Djarin decapitates him and takes his head with him. On the way out, the butchers working in the shop stop and stare, but Din Djarin tells them, hey, there are a lot of new Republic credits in the room with their former boss, and I don't have any right to them. He offers to let them take them all. All he has to do is pass freely. Now, who could pass that offer up? They take him up on it, and we get the title slate. The music accompanying the title slate is an awesome blend of the Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett themes and the 
title, Return of the Mandalorian, immediately called to mind Return of the Jedi for me, which, to an outsider, Jaren might have seemed, wielding a lightsaber like that. The next scene establishes where we're at. It's like a ring-like space station, which might be a minor theme of the episode, Rings. And it just, it's a really super cool place. As cool as it is, I'm curious about the gravity and air situation on this ring. Not enough to have problems with it, of course, just, I'm just curious. We see him hobbling, you know, Din Djarin, on the surface of the ring, so I think he did the job somewhere on this ring. And he's walking to deliver the head to whoever's collecting the bounty. There's an alien in the turbo lift on the way up to the lounge where his bounty can be cashed in, and it is credited as Glavis Cascadag, but Wikipedia only had an entry for Cascadag on Wednesday. That means that Glavis is a descriptor, which means this alien is a Cascadag on Glavis. So Glavis is what I'm calling this ring world, and I, I bet by now it's got an entry. The guildmaster at the head of the table in the back of the lounge is a blue Ishi Tib, a species we've seen in movies and TV before, and it does have a Wikipedia entry. Closed captioning says that it is speaking Huttese, which I found interesting. The Ishi Tib is not speaking basic or a native language, and we see the captions so we don't have to decipher it, but it's speaking Huttese. It's a common language in crime, apparently. There are no huts present. But rather than speak basic, the common language to people in this business seems to be Huttese. Jaren wants him something more than credits, though. He did this bounty for information, too. He even threatens to walk out with the head, but the Ishitib gives up the information, and Jaren walks out with the credits and a lead on where to find some old friends. I'd put that on ice if I were you. Put that on ice could be said about his wound, too. He clutches his leg in pain on the way down the turbo lift when he's by himself. And that shot we just saw, by the way, was one really long shot. It went all the way from him on the surface, into the turbo lift with the alien, to the lounge. He delivers the bounty, gets paid. The shot is tracking around the table, back to him, follows him out, back to the turbo lift. And then he checks his leg, and then he's back on the ring surface. It's a really cool shot. It's kind of like um, Goodfellas, you know, one of those long tracking shots. Mando is heading to Kolzak Alley near the heat vent towers, but that's all the information he gets. He switches on his visor's tracking system and sees what were invisible signs, now visible with arrows pointing the way to the substrata of the ring. He heads down and finds the armorer. She did in fact survive and made it off Navarro in Season 1, and though we don't see her in Season 2, we see her here. She's joined by the hulking heavy Mando, Paz Vizsla, and when Jaren collapses on the walkway, the armor instructs Vizsla to tend to his wounds. Vizsla has a first aid kit, maybe uses a back to spray on Jaren's leg. During the healing, we discover that there are only three of them left from the covert, and the rescue of the Mandalorian and the child back in episode three was costly. Jaren, Vizsla, and the armor appear to be all that survived from their sect. Jaren does mention Bo-Katan at one point, but never brings up the fact that she kind of disparages the Children of the Watch. What weapon caused such a wound? The armorer may have a suspicion, or might just be curious, but Jaren isn't coy. He gives up the sword. He doesn't have delusions of grandeur, as Han might say. Vizsla seems to have an idea about it, because he carefully and solemnly walks the saber over to the armorer. Honestly, I almost felt like 
just stringing together all the armor's dialogue over the next few minutes because she drops lore and establishes canon here that just had me in awe. First, she starts out and she mocks the Empire, which a Mandalorian might do, saying it only lasted less than 30 years. Mandalorians have existed 10,000. What do you know of this blade? The blade makes some really cool sounds as it's waved around. It really does. We hear the blade might be cursed, which is not unheard of in Star Wars anymore. There was a comic run where a Darth Atreus had a pair of cursed sabers that Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader both got affected by in the issue. Vader even uses the word din to describe the loud noise being near the sabers created in the Force. Not referring to Din Djarin, of course, but I did notice that he used that word. Now, this is, of course, a little different, and while I think there might be a force-imbued power within it, I don't think it's a curse. The reference of a curse may just be related to the recent history of the Blade. The armor says if someone undeserving tries to claim their right to Mandalore with the Blade, the world will be destroyed and the planet laid to waste. I think it's just that Death Watch didn't get its way, and since Children of the Watch are a subsect, they lay all the blame on a mythical reason. Bo-Katan Kreeves was given the saber by Sabine Wren, who inadvertently gave the Empire a different weapon which would allow them to overcome the legions of Beskar armored troops. The hilt is of a quality of Beskar I have never seen before. It was forged over a thousand years ago by the Mandalore Tar Visla. He was both Mandalorian and Jedi. The hilt of this weapon, being of strange quality, might be more than just talk, though, because maybe there is something to it. It was made by Paz Vizsla's ancestor, both Mandalorian and Jedi. Now, Din Djarin is neither, which seems to make Paz Vizsla upset the way shots of him are framed here. Jaren had a mission to bring Grogu back to his own kind and did, but now that he has succeeded, he's invited to join their covert and it's sealed with a phrase that has come to mean so much to us. You may join our covert as we rebuild. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Yeah, be prepared to hear that a lot. Now, they've got their trio. The armor... Paz Vizsla, and the Mandalorian, Din Djarin. They're going to set up shop again. The armor recovered her forge or got a new one. Her old one was still in the sewers of Navarro when Cara Dune emptied out the place of Aqualish Thieves back in Season 2 of The Mandalorian. During the setup, Paz tests Din with a simple question. How'd you get it? Din doesn't just say, I got it from Moff Gideon. He says, I defeated him. Vizsla next wants to know if he killed him. But Jaren says he gave him over to the New Republic, and they'll deal with him. But will they? I think what we know of the New Republic and the corruption that's allowed to wreak havoc is a prime spot for a smooth talker like Gideon. He will surely have friends and accomplices who will stand up for him, people who may have even been enriched by the defeat and plunder of Mandalore. I, I think he's coming back for Season 3, so at the very least he will avoid execution and might be poison in someone's ear. The armor says it would have been better to kill him, and she might be right. I could absolutely see Gideon working behind the scenes to subvert the New Republic. He might even swear oaths to the New Republic, which would basically let him do what he was already doing, but now in service of the First Order that's arising behind the scenes. 
songs of eons past foretold of the Mythosaur rising up to herald a new age of Mandalore. Sadly, it only exists in legends. The beast is called a myth right? So the skull logo we frequently see is, of course, one of those dinosaur-like beasts. But like dinosaurs, they may have predated the Mandalorian people and may have been made into legends like dragons were in the Middle Ages. There's something else, though. The meta moment comes when the armor says they exist only in legends. And I absolutely take that as a note to people liking the legends works. As, you know, to say to them, let it go. That was only in legends. I know there are people out there who love those books, but those were never canon. Not even between what when they were written and when Disney wiped the slate clean, they were never canon. Those were always the equivalent of fan fiction. But the beauty of what Favreau and Filoni have been doing is they get to pick and choose the best ones and leave behind the worst. I have a theory about the mines beneath Mandalore, and I'm going to talk about that a little later. The armor asks about the spear, Jaren tells her it's a gift from a Jedi, so it's a gift from Ahsoka. She won that in combat and then gifted it to Jaren, kind of like Sabine and Bo-Katan. It's Beskar, but the armor says Beskar can pierce Beskar and it should only be used for armor, not weapons. Then forge it into armor. I mean, this guy is passing every test, right? No matter how small. He doesn't hesitate. He offers the spear up right away. So the armor gets told, hey, this spear I have, it was a gift. And, you know, the, she knows the saber is something that he won. So she says the darksaber is a more noble weapon for him to wield. Even though the hilt of that thing is also a Beskar and it's a weapon. But, you know, Jedi are supposed to use their lightsabers you know, defensively. She's not melting that, you know, darksaber down because... She believes in the curse, and Jaren at this point holds a symbol. But she's going to take that spear. Have you ever heard of Bo-Katan Kreese? Bo-Katan is a cautionary tale. Oh, she sure has heard of Bo-Katan. She knows that she tried ruling Mandalore with the sword and the history of her house. Her sister being at one time ruler of Mandalore, the Duchess Satine, who was also a romantic interest to Obi-Wan Kenobi, as we know from the show The Clone Wars. The spear at this point, the literal tip of the spear, is being heated white hot while this conversation is happening. The armor talks about Bo-Katan and Mandalore having lost its way, and the spear is being put to the flame. The armor says her rule ended in tragedy as the tip of the spear is glowing. She says the only thing that saved their sect was being cloistered on the moon of Concordia, but really... Death Watch was exiled there. No matter. They were spared the night of a thousand tears we heard Moff Gideon mention at the end of season one of The Mandalorian. We get to see it in a flashback. And I swore I heard a note of the Force theme there. But maybe it was only a similarity? TIE bombers lay waste to the surface, and there's a ground invasion to finish off survivors laid by K2 droids like K2SO. Not him, probably, but there were also Imperial probes, very reminiscent of the end of civilization scenes in the Terminator. The armor says something about preserving the way for the generations, but it's been less than 30 years. 
I think the speculation about her being at one point a believer of Darth Maul is correct. I think those horns on her helmet is a telling sign. And I think the only thing she cares about right now is a rightful or deserving ruler being imposed on the throne of Mandalore. She wants nothing but to restart civilization under her beliefs. I'm not even suggesting that she's wrong. I just feel like that's what we're led to believe based on how she's talking about it. She's got a set of rules she lives by, and you follow it or you're out. She asks Jaren what she should turn the spear into, and he says armor, but for a specific foundling. He misses Grogu. She points out that he's on the path to becoming a Jedi, Grogu, and Jedi forgo attachment. Sort of, you know, you're out of luck, pal. Again, though, Jaren passes another unannounced test when he tells her that the Jedi Creed is the opposite of the way. He says loyalty and solidarity are the way. She doesn't argue that further. She just gets to work. And in the forging montage, we clearly see rings fall that will become chainmail. And I've got to hand to Star Wars. Once again, we're seeing something old turned into something new. Medieval armory is going to turn, be turned into something new. And I cannot wait to buy a Grogu and Chainmail action figure. I have a strong feeling if you visit Ren Fairs, you may end up seeing a child or two wearing that. We, of course, do not get to see Grogu in it, or even see the nice mithril shirt. <laughs> but we see the armor tie it up in a bagginses. Okay, it's a Beskar Chainmail something. And it's tied up in a bundle, and the shape of the bundle is clearly Grogu's head. It's a big round circle with two ears flopping off the sides. The only way it could have been more obvious if the if, if the cloth was green. Ignite the blade. It's heavier than I thought. Energy constantly flows through the crystal. You're not fighting with a simple blade as much as you are directing a current of power. Your thoughts, your actions, they become energy. They flow through the crystal as well and become a part of the blade. That sword is old, heavy, but powerful. Respect its strength. One, two, three, four, five, six. Faster. One, two, three, four, five, six. The blade feels lighter. You're connecting with it. It's becoming a part of you. But you cannot rely solely on the blade. You're not fighting me. You're fighting yourself. And losing. So that audio is from Star Wars Rebels. It's Kanan Jarrus teaching Sabine Wren how to wield the Darksaber. It is from the third season episode, Trials of the Darksaber, and it's quite similar to what the armor and Jaren are doing. You are fighting against the blade. It gets heavier with each move. That is because you are fighting against the blade. You should be fighting against your opponent. 
Stand up. Persistence without insight will lead to the same outcome. Your body is strong, but your mind is distracted. I am focused. The blade says otherwise. If you do a search for the words that are appearing on the screen in the closed captioning, you'll find in Wikipedia that those numbers are Mandoa, a language brought from Coruscant to Mandalore by a group which included the very first leader of the planet, Mandalore I. It's both an oral and written language, and we've seen it in The Mandalorian when Boba Fett was showing his holographic chain code to Fennec Shan and Din Djarin in Chapter 14. It seems as though lightsabers are difficult to wield because someone who isn't Force-sensitive doesn't understand how to focus through the energy of the blade. I think it's possible that the Darksaber is even more difficult because of the Beskar. But maybe also there's something mystical imbued through the Force by Tar Vizsla making it difficult for someone to wield unless they're worthy. Paz Vizsla questions whether Jaren having trouble means the wrong person has the blade. Jaren agrees to a duel, Vizsla hoping here to reclaim a family heirloom, Jaren hoping to prove he's worthy. Jaren does not triumph while holding the saber, I noticed. Vizsla picks up the hilt at one point, but it's heavy in his hands as well. And because he can't bring himself to put it down, Jaren overcomes him with just a dagger, and then he holds a knife through his throat. The armorer ends the duel before Jaren can take off his helmet or his head with it. She then goes over the creed with Vizsla, who has never removed his helmet in front of others or had it removed by others. Jaren doesn't want to answer when it's his turn. The answer we know is yes. He did it in front of Mayfeld and the Imperial officer on Morak, and then on the bridge of Moff Gideon's cruiser. He answers reluctantly. By creed, you must vow. I have. Then you are a Mandalorian no more. I beg you for your forgiveness. How can I atone? Leave apostate. There is apparently a way to atone, though it's a tough one. Apparently you can visit the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. But the mines have all been destroyed. This is the way. So here's my fun thought. What if we see Din Djarin at some point make that trek to Mandalore? He heads down into the mines. He finds the living waters. And there's something alive in it. Something woke because of the bombardment on the surface and the lack of humans. Remember Naboo's watery planet core? Well, what if there's a mythosaur in those waters beneath Mandalore? I don't know if I love it or hate it, but even on my first watch it occurred to me, it was so clear in my mind too that I wrote it down at about 3.15 in the morning. I mean, you know, planet core, waters, mythosaur, I don't know, we'll see. I wondered as he was walking away if there was going to be some kind of threat or maybe a challenge from the armor for the saber now that he's not worthy. Maybe we'd see the end of the children on the watch right here and now, him taking them both out. How heart-wrenching would it be to have your family wiped out and now your adoptive family disowns you? Okay. 
So, then Jaren takes a commercial flight to Tatooine. I'm shocked that it was flight 1020 and not 1137. He approaches a gate and a security alarm goes off. The R3X droid tells him, you can't take weapons in. No blades, no bows. Leave your weapons here. No blades, no bows. Leave your weapons here. I very nearly tweeted out that I was going to riot if his luggage went lost and the Darksaber was missing. I'm so glad we didn't have to deal with that, though. On the flight, he has a moment with a Rodian child, and I think it was a nice move to change it from a human that it was in the concept art. The green skin of the Rodian child, coupled with him looking at the Grogu head-shaped bindle, really enforced what he said before about missing him. Now, more than ever, he's wishing for family. It seems like a short trip, so Glavis is probably somewhere in the Outer Rim, and they don't land in Mos Espa, they land in Mos Eisley. And there was a mod parlor outside Mos Eisley, remember, so perhaps Boba Fett's got eyes on this spaceport as well. He contracted the mod Vespeter Gang, so maybe they're keeping their eyes on Mos Espa and Mos Eisley. Din Djarin disembarks and everything is in the case, Darksaber included. We get treated to a nice Star Wars scene transition, which takes us to Pelimato's docking bay. And a BD unit peeks into the frame. And f- I, I may not have played Jedi Fallen Order yet, but I know about BD-1 because of things like Twitch and YouTube. I am totally on board. As the rest of the episode went on, I was just hoping BD's going to join him, right? He's going to join Mando's team and he's going to be the buddy for Grogu. What an arc would that be from going to hating droids at the start of the series to having a droid partner by the start of Season 3. And that's why the Womp Rat grabbing him made me so angry. I was mad. Pelimato gets no help from the other droids to save BD. Treadwell doesn't step up. R5, the dumb pit droids. She goes looking for it and attacks. And Amy Sedaris, I think she did a great job. Because I actually got concerned for a moment. But then Mando shows up and makes his entrance with his blaster. You good? Oh, good. Oh, boy. Hey, look, everyone, it's Mando! Let me apologize right now, because you're going to hear that sound clip a whole lot. You've already heard it twice in this episode. You're going to hear it a whole bunch. BD is okay. She's okay. Mando's okay. Everyone's okay. But where's his little companion, Belly asks. Din tells her that he returned him to his own kind, and she's disappointed. Remember, she grew fond of the little guy. I don't think she really wants to put him in a petting zoo. I think she just really wanted to hold him. She loved him. And this is the start of about 17 minutes of what's essentially a classic car restoration sequence. I've got to imagine there's a sizable portion of the Star Wars audience with whom this resonates. Cars aren't my thing, but it wasn't hard for me to figure out what was going on here. Pelly asks why he's there, because apparently she forgot she sent him a message about finding a replacement for his ship. He's got the credits, she's got a fresh kill, so she tells the droids, count the cash and fire up the grill. Jaren assumes it's another Razor Crest, a gunship. It's got a cargo hold for bringing bounties in gold. It's cozy, something he's familiar with flying and doing maintenance. A place he can live, you know, living that van life. Ready to have your mind blown? Instead, Pelly takes him to the garage and pulls a billowing sheet off a real classic. 
It's an N1 Naboo starfighter of the kind that Anakin piloted as a child to destroy the command ship controlling droids during the invasion of Naboo. Jaren wants his money back. She says, okay. But then she does her best used car sales pitch. It'll be faster than a racing animal. It doesn't need a docking ring. It's pre-Empire and off the grid. You gotta see the potential! Woo! I'm telling you, Mando, you gotta believe me. This is a classic. BD helps Mando while he's on his back under the ship, and every scene the little guy's in makes me hope more that he's going to end up joining Mando. Pelly brings in something called a Turbonic Venturi Assimilator that's basically going to be the exposed manifold on the hood of this classic hot rod. There's a lot packed into this short scene. Pelly using Jawas to basically scour Tatooine for parts with no questions asked. She dated one. They're furry all over. And we find out Din knows his way around a garage. The ship rebuilding montage is very much like a couple friends rebuilding a classic car. We get a lot of techno babble, including some switch that we'll see him use later, which is basically like nitrous oxide out of a street racing movie. Mando uses the BD unit to show him where the park goes and thanks the droid. He has come a long way, folks. It's rare praise, too, since the thank you sets the little BDUs, or, well, he's not a BDU. It sets his little BD unit's feet tapping. Jaren is slowly being won over by his work on his ship. I'm not sure if Pelly is scamming him, but maybe she knows what he needs before he does. The Jawas return with one of his parts. It's called a cryogenic density combustion booster, and it looks exactly like what Han and Luke try to keep the trash compactor walls from closing in on them in the Death Star and a new hope looks like. He wants to know where they got it. Pelly translates, they crimped it off a spice runner when it was refueling. A pike spice runner. This brings the bad guys back on our radar, though I doubt Mando came on their radar because of this part. We do find out the pikes are making life difficult for everyone ever since the spice trade hit the planet. So it's not just the crime lords that are having trouble, it's everyone is. We also hear law enforcement, whatever little there is, won't deal with this problem. Finally, it's time for a test drive. (laughs) Wikipedia calls that thing a sand bat. It crows like a rooster, but it's a sand bat. The ship gets rolled out into the center of the docking bay. Pelly has converted the droid port behind the pilot to a small chamber for a passenger. Maybe a small passenger like Grogu? And just imagine him looking out through the bubble. I think that's going to happen. Mando takes it up and out over Mos Eisley, and he heads toward a part of the pod racing course we saw in A Phantom Menace. And I feel like there's a reason there's no one true map of Tatooine. Because he's in Mos Eisley, then he's in Beggar's Canyon... And I think everyone and their brother must have shouted out, the barrier is still broken. You know, the barrier that Anakin broke through during the Boonta Eve pod race so many years ago is still disintegrated. The ship is fast. Controls are snappy. He decides it's time to take it into orbit. He buzzes the tower of a commuter starliner and has a moment with the little Rodian girl from his trip to Tatooine. Then he does a spin toward the planet. I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. I mean, the rhyming that they do here in this show is, uh, there's a lot of it. Then we hear a beep and the police arrive. 
Trapper Wolf isn't there. It's a lieutenant with a New Republic who wants his license and registration, basically. You know, you can't fly that fast next to a commercial Starliner. That's echoing Chapter 10 of The Mandalorian. Din Djarin's beacon is not on. And at the moment, he doesn't have his transmitter set up. You know, this was just a test flight. As soon as the X-Wings came on screen, I was hoping we were going to get him. Relinquish your flight controls for remote control access. Uh, hold on a second there, Lieutenant. I think we can let him off with a warning this time. Thank you, officer. There he is, Captain Carson Tiva. We've been using his sound clips a lot. Paul Sun-Hyung Lee is back again. He does recognize Jaren's voice and might even be close enough to see through the N1 cockpit bubble. But Jaren hits the NOS switch and takes off. There's a funny moment where the lieutenant's confused because he didn't power up his hyperdrive. Our captain, my captain, schools Rook on the sublight engines. And they leave him be because... When you've been through the Battle of Yavin and the Battle of Endor, do you really want to deal with paperwork on a recently rebuilt N1 on Tatooine? I mean, Tatooine? Well, how was it? Wizard. Jaren lands, and he is impressed with his new hot rod. He hops out, and Mono tells him, Someone stopped by asking for you. She can't remember her name, but that's all right. She's still there. It's Fennec Shand. Word must have gotten out about a Mandalorian on Tatooine, and she's glad to see him. She offers him a job. It's not a bounty. Boba Fett needs muscle. Din Jaren is going to help out for free because he needs a new family, right? Before he goes to help, however, he says he's got to go see his old family, his little friend. What's the bounty? No bounty. We need muscle. Boba Fett. He sure would appreciate it. Tell him it's on the house. But first, I gotta pay a visit to a little friend. The question is, are we gonna get chainmail wearing Grogu next week? Or is that gonna happen off screen and we're gonna see it in the finale or something? Like when Mando rides into town to save the day? There are tons of questions. Tons of possibilities. Maybe his covert has a change of heart. And they seek him out and accept him anyway. And they save the day and want to help him reclaim Mandalore. And that's the setup for season three of The Mandalorian. Maybe it's just Mando and Grogu. Or maybe just Mando and then Ahsoka comes in. Or Ahsoka and Sabine Wren now that she's been announced as cast. Maybe it's none of that. And Boba Fett rides his rancor. You know, surely he's been practicing. And that's why we didn't see him this episode, right? Maybe it's just Boba Fett, Mando... And Fennec Shand and against the world. And maybe the rest of the town comes to their aid. I don't see that happening, but I don't know what's going to happen. There's only two episodes left to go. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Usually I go over a lot more theories and I do have more. But this is already a really long episode. And I had to leave out little things like the echo of Lando's dialogue between Mando and BD. And there's just so much more. I'm pleased with the episode, and I'm very much looking forward to the last two. Can we go now? Let's go. Please support our sponsor, Cufflinks.com. Check out the merchandise, and if you decide to shop, remember that 15% off site-wide code, TheWay15. It's going to be available until our coverage of this first season of The Book of Boba Fett comes to a close. 
This was a full episode of the Book of Boba Fett, and Boba Fett wasn't in it. The themes of family and belonging to a tribe certainly were, and I think that's enough for me to see the connection. Let me know what you think. Email us, this is the way podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at this is the way pod or on Facebook.com at slash this is the way pod. The Book of Boba Fett, Chapter 6, starts streaming Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Until then, I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you always. Yeah.